Welcome to Unlikely Intersections, where intent, impact, and inquiry inspire our conversations. I'm Doc Philip Brown, and I'm here with my good friend, Dr. Terry Jackson, with you at the intersection. The interesting thing about intersections is that we all face many intersections every day. The way we navigate these determines the trajectory of our days and our lives. We're really excited today, and I'd say a bit courageous, as we're doing two brand new things at the same time. We're doing our first uh, true live episode, and we're including our first guest. And I'm so inspired today by our first guest, Sally Helgeson. She is a premier expert on women's leadership, a best-selling author and international speaker. Uh, And she's going to talk to you today about not just women in leadership, but also about the whole concept of inclusive leadership. So without further ado, we will bring uh, Sally into the picture. Sally, welcome to the intersection. Well, thank you so much, uh, Philip and uh, Terry. It's a real pleasure to be here. And I love this idea of the intersection. That's, uh, That's where we all are now. And we're all um, we're all trying to figure out how to how to make it work in the most powerful way we can. Absolutely. Thank you so very much for being a guest. You know, I think it was some years ago when you and I met and uh, we've had some powerful conversations. But, you know, most importantly to me was your work, you know, your 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 purpose behind your work and your passion behind your work. And that that's why I've gained as much admiration for you as I, as I have, because you're always at the intersection, as we say, but you're always tackling those tough conversations as well. Exactly. And, you know, it, it's, it's interesting reflecting back. I came into this work in women's leadership 35 years ago mm-hmm. um, with the book, The Female Advantage, Women's Ways of Leadership which was the first to focus on what women had to contribute rather than how they needed to change and adapt. And that had come out of my own experience working in corporate communications during the 1980s and noticing what a poor job uh, the organizations I was part of did at understanding what women had to contribute as leaders. So it's been a pretty consistent thread that has broadened out to the larger topic of inclusion over the years. But really, I have been fired by the mission from the very start Mm -hmm. of being able to help women and other people who are outside the standard leadership mainstream to recognize, articulate, and act on their greatest strengths and help leaders understand what those strengths are uh, so they can build more inclusive organizations. Well, I want to let our listeners know that uh, Sally has an unbelievable website with a great blog. And I did a lot of, a lot of study on it and getting ready for the thing. And one of the things that just struck me right out of the gate of one of your recent uh, posts was about uh, the old boys network. And as somebody who uh, unfortunately has begun to look like part of the old boys <laughs> network, I, I'll just, I just would like uh, for you to share with our listeners a little bit about about that and how folks uh, can navigate that in a more effective way? Well, yeah, that's a that's a wonderful question. And I did write about it in, in one of my most recent newsletters, if not the most recent, uh, how to navigate the old boys network around and with the old boys network. In many organizations, the old boys network is fairly established. And I would say in the last seven to 10 years, it has often opened up a little bit to include people that don't necessarily look like or have the same background or experience as the standard um, old boys who ran most organizations up through um, through 2010 or so. Uh, But despite that, despite the fact that it can look a little more inclusive, Old boys networks tend to be self-reinforcing. Their strength is that they really are about leveraging relationships. And that's their purpose. It's not just building relationships. It's how people within them leverage relationships. Their weakness is that they tend to be not very inclusive and not very open. And this causes problems for people who are outside the mainstream who are looking at the possibility 
of enhancing and building their own leadership strengths, uh, how to get in. And it's hard to get in. And what I really recommend, because I've seen it work over the many decades I've been doing this work, is that um, start building your own network. Start building mm -hmm. your own network mm -hmm. internally with peers and colleagues. Start very importantly, building your own network externally uh, with people in your field, because this is what gives you strength. This is what you can forge connections that are as powerful and you can get as much information and advice if you're willing to do the work that that comes with building your own network. So that's really where we want to put our energy, not complaining about the old voice network. OK, it exists. It's a, it's an issue um, and it it can operate in a way that's very exclusive. But what we can do in the face of this is to build our own networks. I'm big on what we can control uh, rather than the, all the many issues that can concern us. You know, Sally, I couldn't uh, agree more with you because uh, I look at it from, from, from two perspectives. The first perspective is, of course, for a lot of old boy networks, I'm just not gonna fit. And I understand that I'm not gonna fit. But then the question I ask is one of my favorite questions, how do I make it work? How do I still achieve what I'm seeking to achieve? And that probably is one of the reasons that Dr. Brown and I connected as friends. And as you say, create your own network, which of course our friend Marshall Goldsmith says the same thing. Hey, we have the Marshall Goldsmith 100, but create your own networks in your own local areas that will allow you to continue to do the work. So the question I have for you is in creating your own network, what are the consequences or what are the pros and the cons of one creating an inclusive network, which I know that's, or not creating an inclusive network? How, how do we, how do we help um, navigate and possibly uh, eliminate the status quo? Well, I think that the way we navigate the status quo is to build up our own strength. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I have noticed over the 35 years I've been in this field of inclusion and leadership is that the way organizations are most likely to change is when they're drawing from a more diverse leadership pool. Mm -hmm. So. It, it, it's a kind of chicken and the egg thing. Mm -hmm. I always advocate doing what you can to build up your own strength. I often get feedback where people say, well, isn't that just playing into the game, you know, of, of, not, of, not, taking the, of not taking it on, of not taking the system on? Well, uh, no, <laughs> it's not. Because first of all, it's very difficult to make um, to make systemic changes mm. when you don't have real influence and positional power. Mm -hmm. Marshall, our friend Marshall always quotes Peter Drucker as saying, the person who gets to make the decision is the person in the position to make the decision. Mm -hmm. That is not necessarily the best person, not necessarily the wisest person, that's the person that gets to make the decision. So what we want to do is to increase the likelihood that we will have greater decision-making power, greater influence, and uh, greater visibility in our organization, our community, whatever sphere we're operating in, our university. So by doing that, um, we, we, to some degree, if we build strong networks, create alternate centers of power. So our organizations become more web-like in their structure rather than so hierarchical and so limited. So that's a good thing. But also we increase our own likelihood of getting into a position where we can really make a substantive difference. Mm -hmm. so, so that's really, I think, a more effective way to think of it. And that's why in, in my new book, Rising Together, I make a big distinction 
between what are networks and what are grapevines. Grapevines are mm. usually systems where we share information from a point of powerlessness. Mm -hmm. And this is how they have evolved over time. Uh, but, and, and in that way, because they share, disseminate and share information, grapevines have a certain degree of power, but they are often, you know, one of the characteristics of them is that they're an alternate center of power that that of people who have no power mm. so and and they often as a result default to complaint one example let me give be more specific i give a, a, a wonderful example in the book um that if if you read my newsletter you you probably uh, heard about and it's in the new book uh of the what's called the alori sisterhood which is a group of uh african-american political operatives in new york state and they, you know, had, um, they were, ex they found themselves excluded from a major meeting by the Latino and African-American men who are also political operatives. They found themselves excluded from a major meeting and they were this about 10 or 12 years ago. They didn't even get the notification. Um, so they decided to create their own meeting. And the men who excluded them actually crashed the meeting. <laughs> so they decided to start meeting in one another's homes. And what they did was they took a very deliberative approach to being a network rather than a grapevine in that they made the decision that what they were going to do was to leverage one another's connections to build support for one another in terms of getting into more powerful positions, share relationships, share connections, share information. Oh, here's a job. I'm going to recommend you for this. Uh, our whole group is going to stand behind you and help you prep for your interview for that. And the result has been that ne the, the, the network, the Alori Sisterhood is still together uh, after 12 years, and they have placed women in positions of real, real power, including mm -hmm. the uh, chief of communications in the Biden administration. These were people who are knocking on doors 12 years ago. So it, it really worked. And I think the two, the two lessons we can take from that network are number one, focus on leveraging the relationships you have. Mm -hmm. And number two, don't, don't get caught in feeling excluded from the power structure, create your own power structure. And uh, over time, that can develop very powerfully. So connected to that, uh, Sally, is the whole concept of allyship. So let's, mm -hmm. let's, let's take the situation where maybe you got one or more of the people in the groups you're talking about, the own network, uh, develop some strong allies within the, the old boy network. What would that look like? Well, and, and in fact, that's what happened. But guess what happened? Um, the old boys network members started coming to them <laughs> because they saw that they were successfully leveraging the power they had and getting into positions of influence. So more of what, what, what that teaches us is that more effective than feeling, oh, we're excluded, we're not part of that, what are we going to do? Why won't they let us in? They're, you know, not behaving inclusively. They're shutting us out. Rather than that, the idea was, okay, let's let's create the conditions where we mm -hmm. can have more power and influence, and then they'll come to us. And that's exactly what happened. And that's how things uh, that's how things evolve. Um, I, I do have one other thing to say that's interesting about building these external networks that are alternate centers of power is that research shows, uh, particularly that done by Dr. Boris Gorsberg at uh, Harvard, I think it's the School of Education, not School of Business, although he mostly writes about business. But he did some really interesting um, studies of, of Wall Street analysts and what made their skills portable. And what he discovered, this is a huge major uh, study that he published, a big, thick book called Rising Stars, Chasing Stars. Sorry. And what he discovered is that, that the, generally the men who were star analysts did a very poor job of carrying their uh, ability to be star analysts to different organizations. Mm. 
whereas the women did a pretty good job of it. And in digging down, he had no way, this was very quantitative, his research, he had no way to account for that difference. So he started doing some interviews and more qualitative stuff with women. And what he discovered was there were a number of reasons. First of all, the women really looked at the new culture. You know, they, they were one um, investment firm and they got an offer from another. They really looked at the culture and thought, is there a fit? Where the men tended to be like, oh, okay, it's a no brainer. They're offering me X amount of more money. Um, so they were they were more aware and cognizant of culture. But the other thing he found is that they had external networks that really helped them, whereas mm -hmm. the men tended to be very connected in the old boys network internally mm -hmm. in their organizations because they had access to it. And it didn't help them um, when they were out, um, when they were in another organization. So they kind of had to start over for, from scratch. So in terms of building a career where your skills are portable, external networks are also very powerful. That That is awesome. And, you know, Sally, it's interesting that you mentioned that um, because back in 2016, I did uh, some work with 20 women executives at uh, a large insurance company. And what I found in my research and as I prepared was that women over the age of 40, compared to their men counterparts, were much better leaders from a EQ perspective, simply because some were mothers and that whole nurturing aspect that came into not only nurturing children at home, but nurturing their, um, their, 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 their employees, as well as being more empathetic uh, to, to others in, in the workplace. You know, you have a, a great book titled how Women Rise, uh, which I've read, which is outstanding. And as we talk about inclusion, um, and I'm sure some of the younger audience who are out in, cor in the corporate world, uh, the younger women would like to know, um, what are some of the steps that they could try to avoid that would enable them to rise and to be more inclusive in the workplace? So this is advice for younger women in terms of being able to rise and be more inclusive in the workplace? Yeah, I would say yes, simply because some of them are just entering the work workspace. Um, they don't have that experience. Uh, and, and if they were, I guess, newbies, for lack of a better word, going in, how could they hit the ground running and understand the power of inclusiveness? And what, what, what advice could you give to them? Well, I think the advice I would give to them first would be threefold. One is focus on your own strengths. Get a sense of what those strengths are as soon as you can in your work life. It, it takes a while to, to recognize that. But if you're looking for it, if you're constantly sort of asking, you know, what was my strength in that meeting? What could I have done differently? How could I have been better, more powerful? Um, how could I have displayed my strengths? So, so what you, you really want to do is look at your strengths and then figure out how well you are, how you can articulate those strengths so you can be very, very clear about that. And that's a, that's a really good way to do it because then you start attracting other people. Um, secondly is to never undervalue the power of building relationships and building relationships broadly. I think one of the issues that has arisen in the last 10 years is there's been so much emphasis on mentors and sponsors, mm -hmm. which is very important, of course, but it has been so emphasized that people have often forgotten that, that strong relationships benefit you when they are built at every single level. So you want mm -hmm. to be as inclusive as possible in building relationships. You know, it's not just that transactional thing of you never know where someone else is going to end up. It's also as you build relationships more broadly and beca you become more skilled at dealing with people who may have very different backgrounds mm -hmm. from yourself, uh, from yourself. Uh, you become, you, you develop allies, as Dr. Brown was talking about, in unexpected places, and that can help 
so much um, as long as you're looking at it from the perspective of, you know, how can I be a benefit to you as well? Mm -hmm. So that's that's really key. And the third thing, you know, was it, I, I, I'm kind of reminded of it by the beginning of your question where you talked about well, in your observation, women leaders had developed more empathy from the experience of, of being mothers and sort of their do, domestic role. And I find that to be very true. I also hear a lot of younger women going on, going on about, you know, I don't know how I can do this and have a family. I don't think my job is aligned with being a mother. Maybe I need to choose, et cetera. Um, we don't need to choose. Those skills are so translatable. And one of the, the stories that I most love, I was reading, um, I was reading a profile of Nancy Pelosi in the Washington Post a couple of maybe two years ago, and the interviews about how she was managing this very fractious, large caucus and doing so, so superbly. And the interviewer asked her, he said, well, I'm assuming you have the ability to lead um, such a diverse and clamorous group of people uh, because of the experience of your father, who was, I believe, the, the mayor of Baltimore and went on to be a congressman. So it was a very political environment she grew up in. And she said, um, watching my dad was helpful. She said, but what has really enabled me um, to lead this caucus is the fact that I had five children in six years. Mm. She said, you can be a mother. <laughs> five children in six years, you can manage anything you can manage a war you can manage a government you can do it and i just love that quote because that really one of the things that to me women have brought into the workplace is a permission to recognize that we all are full human beings we have families we have concerns that lie outside the workplace um, i remember back in the 80s um, women being told, don't put a picture of your kids on your desk. You know, that will undermine your ability to be seen as a professional. I remember women having to duck out of uh, major meetings to take a tiny, quick one minute call uh, that had anything to do with their children, a babysitter being sick, et cetera. And, uh, and that's not true anymore. Men and women, all of us, bring you know the whole idea is bring your whole self to work and often we develop talents and skills and connections in the community uh through our personal lives so i think we need to recognize that that we can you know maybe we can't do it all at the same time uh although nancy pelosi was pretty busy while she was having her her babies but maybe we can't do it all at the same time but we we really can find individual ways to have a satisfying personal life and a satisfying professional life, and both are important. Such a great discussion, and I've got so many questions. I've got two parallel lines of thought going, but I want to take one. You know, we kind of live in a world of paradoxes, right? It's certainly not an either-or world. There are lots of, lots of ways things can happen, but the paradox I want to ask you about is, you know, as a healthcare guy, I'm a surgeon by training, healthcare system executive now, one of the things we know for sure is that the top influencers for what happens to a family or a unit of any kind are the women. The number one influencer of, of the way someone seeks health care or how well they take care of them is always the, the, a female figure, often the maternal figure. But yet in, in corporate world, we see something dramatically different. So it's a sort of a two-part question. Why is that? And then what happens to bring balance to that? Because we know it's effective. Hey, well, it, it's a big structural question, particularly related to healthcare, that often has to do with the buy-up. I mean, I'm experiencing it in my own um, hospital system, got bought by a huge system that has massive amounts of debt in order to take it on. So all the decisions that are made are driven by the fact that they have a, you know, the, the, the new parent, which is located half a nation away, is, uh, is trying to deal with the debt from that leverage buyout. So those are the kinds of structural 
decisions that are influencing um, the healthcare system now. We're certainly seeing it in nursing homes where there's a you know a huge buy-up, often by hedge funds, of nursing homes. And so the money gets funneled away. So that's a that's a structural issue in our late capitalist environment that is having a particular impact upon healthcare, I would suggest. And in the I mean you're much more of an expert on this than I am, but it's having a, an impact on it and it is keeping it in a a kind of, I don't want to say male-centric way, but it's it's bringing in an aspect of hierarchy and control, command and control that is keeping not only women down, but a lot of other people. I mean, I've, I've heard this from, you know, the guy administering the MRIs. He said, you know, our goal here is to provide excellent uh, customer service. Then the suits, as he calls them, visit us. And what they tell us is we've got to perform more MRIs in a day. And uh, those two things don't work. So I think that, that we've got some structural healthcare uh, issues here that make this arena particularly, particularly difficult. And, you know, there's some long-term solutions, but it is interesting. And you know what, when you were talking about the healthcare decisions being driven by women, what I also realize is that you know, in, in marketing and advertising, um, something like 85% of all decisions about what to buy, what to purchase, including cars, uh, are made by women. And yet the marketing and the distribution is done with the idea of a male customer. And they're awkward about how to address the female customer. So I think these are um, there are different issues because one is very structural and the other is just a kind of lack of imagination, really, the, 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 the marketing and advertising world. But, uh, but, but it, these are things that are holding back our ability to forge organizations that are more engaging to more people. And I think that's why the Gallup, even before the pandemic in 2018, that stunning Gallup survey that showed that something like 65% of people reported feeling totally unengaged at work and another 20% mildly unengaged. So you had something like 18% of people being highly engaged. That's an issue. Um, the good news is that organizations are starting to recognize that is an issue. Uh, if healthcare continues down this path, they're not going to be able to get anybody to work there. Uh, so that becomes an issue, especially as this country closes down a lot of immigration. So it's, you know, the, the problem is, is on track to start to break some systems. And when that happens, then you can get a new pool of leadership, and and that's what it often takes. And you hit on a, you, you, somewhere in, in that commentary, you talked about the concept of lack of imagination, mm. and I think that I think that that lack of imagination is one of the most uh, important imperatives we need to understand in the realm of inclusion. It's that that current lack of imagination it can be fixed. Well, that's exactly right. And the lack of imagination really ties very much to the points Terry was making about empathy. Mm -hmm. Because what is empathy really? It is the ability to, you know, at the basic level, put yourself in another person's shoes. And how do we put ourselves in another person's shoes? We do that by imagining what their experience is. We do that by imagining the factors that brought them to think and act and behave and feel in the way that they feel. So it is an act, empathy is really an act of imagination. And I think that it is often blocked by fear. And that's one thing I see, you know, in the diversity and inclusion space mm -hmm. um, is that that there's a lot of fear right now that you're going to get shut down if you possibly say the wrong thing, if you possibly appear the wrong way, et cetera. And this is 
blanket. And this is something that that I think is is causing some problems. But the imagination and the empathy that results from imagination is the way out of this because that fear freezes us from understanding what another person's uh, reality and experience is like, uh, causes us to emphasize the differences. And I hear this, you know, from men sometimes, you know, well, I can't, I can't put myself in a woman's shoes. Ha ha ha. Okay, fine. That's cute. But you know, what, what, what are you saying? You, you so lack imagination that you can only imagine your own experience. Uh, and it's fear that causes them to say that. I, it, I believe, you know, fear that they're, that they're going to get pushed back or they're going to do it wrong. So they default. And this is why in my new book, I really emphasize behaviors and, you know, how we can behave in ways that maximize our ability to create inclusive organizations and build relationships, strong relationships across a huge variety of boundaries. You know, it's interesting that uh, you said that some of the men would say, so what am I going to do, put myself in uh, the shoes of a woman? I can't do that. You know, one of the greatest gifts that I say that I've ever received was the fact that I have a daughter. And so from a man's perspective, having a daughter, yeah, you have to kind of put yourself in a woman's shoes because you want her to have the best life experiences possible, right? And you mentioned imagination, as Dr. Brown mentioned it, and you mentioned fear. And so I like to say that the underpinning of all of that is courage. Yes. How can we get all people to have the courage to put themselves in other people's shoes. And to that male, I would say, so what is it like to be a human being? I don't necessarily have to go to the to, to gender, right? And well, she's a woman, I'm a man. But what does it mean to you as a human being? How would you feel if someone treated you a particular way? Uh, we gotta, we have to have that courage. Is there any advice you can give us around having this courage to overcome the fear so that we can, as I like to say, we need to have these conversations. My experience, we build courage through small steps, mm -hmm. through incrementally doing something, asking somebody after a meeting who you might have seen that they had made a remark and it nobody acknowledged it. Asking them afterwards, could you explain that a little more? That was an interesting point you raised. And I I noticed that it it kind of got overlooked. Could could you explain that a little more? Or that was an interesting point you made. How did you come to that conclusion? What was your thinking there? So you're reaching out in a very specific way. You're not offering sympathy. Oh, I feel so bad for you. You didn't get blah, blah, blah. No, you're, you're demonstrating the courage of curiosity. And curiosity and courage are often well aligned. Uh, we don't think of them that way, but they are. So I think when we begin a practice of asking those kinds of small questions, because we notice something that happened, um, we notice that somebody was stereotyped mm -hmm. in a situation. And we ask a question like, not so much how did that make you feel, because it's a very general question, mm -hmm. but hmm, I noticed that, that that remark seemed to me to be rather stereotyping. Mm -hmm. um, what was your response? Did you feel that way as well? Uh, and then get into that conversation. You know, we share, we all have unconscious biases. And mm -hmm. in, um, in Rising Together, one of the people that I interviewed was our colleague, Terry uh, Bev Wright, who is mm -hmm. part of the MG100. And she has this, uh, has taken on this thing called, Dal this wonderful thing called Dallas Dinner Table, where they mm -hmm. bring together people from all sectors in leadership positions in Dallas. She was at IBM there um, to have real conversations. The, the, the guiding principle is come as you are. 
And she talks about her experience of going to her first one. And there was a white man from East Texas there with a very strong East Texas accent. And she grew up in Dallas, but her family was from East Texas. And she said, I had the experience in the summer of seeing how my father and my grandfather were treated. Mm. She said, so my first thought was, I am not going to sit next to this guy with the East Texas accent. I don't want to hear him. Um, I know who and how he is. And of course, she was seated next to him. And she said, we got into one of the most profound conversations of my life. She said, because we both talked about our experience of East Texas and how different it was. And he, she said, I came to see that he had been, as a child, imprinted by this totally racist uh, assumptions that underlay the society and culture he was part of. He was just like me. He was a child who had been imprinted with this. Mm -hmm. She said, and through the evening, we were able to have such a rich discussion. And so I think it's exposure too. put yourself in situations where you're going to meet people who have a different experience than you do uh, and 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 remain open to being able to listen to what that is. So I think that these small steps are what build courage. And then we get in the habit. Once we get in the habit, we have a practice. We have a way that we act in these situations. We have go-to questions that we ask in these question in these situations because they've been effective in the past. So I think that's how we we build courage. We don't suddenly have courage. It doesn't come to us overnight. We don't, you know, wake up one morning and say, I'm brave. You know, <laughs> right, that's, right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> the self-affirmation, I am brave, I am worthy, and all this. That's fine. That's nice. But you know, the 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 important thing is to be able to find out what works and then deepen that practice. So, so uh, powerful, this conversation about the linkage of courage and curiosity. And of course, we've done episodes on curiosity and courage. And, uh, you know, it's not a new concept. Uh, a guy named Rudyard Kipling wrote about it in a child story named called Ricky Ticky Tavy, right? He said the hardest thing in the world is a frightened mongoose mm -hmm. because he's eaten up from nose to tail with curiosity. He is literally too curious to be scared. And so it's not a new concept, right? It's like, you know, we have known that curiosity is a powerful antidote to, to fear and a, and a fortifier of courage. So, you know, how do we make that transition back becomes the question in my mind. Like, you know, it's not new. Maybe we've forgotten about it. And so many of these things that uh, we've talked about today are concepts that are basically incontrovertible. But maybe we have forgotten to bring them to the forefront of what we do. Maybe the, maybe the right intersection has not occurred to bring it back to, our, to the forefront of our thinking of how we conduct our lives and our business processes. Well, I love that. Um, that I've forgotten about the mongoose, too. And I was just kind of riffing. And, uh, you know, these are human concepts. These are part of what humanity has learned over its very bloody and uh, divisive millennia. This is part of what we've learned. We've learned that curiosity and courage are connected. We've learned that small steps are how we build our capacity, not just for courage, but for having strong conversations, for examining what our own biases may be and finding ways to address them. Um, so we've known these things. So I think what what Terry said before is so important. You know, how does this feel to you as a human? We get into and you know, for me, one of the best things that has ever happened are the um, employee resource groups and organizations because mm -hmm. they've given people fantastic networks. They started off as you know, just kind of like, well, you go over there and talk about that, but they have become a real force for change in organizations. So I, I have, uh, I not only have enormous respect, but most of my work has been really through ERGs over the last 15 years or even 20 years. However, I think that ERGs can benefit by 
asking Terry's question more. How does this feel to me as a human being? Because we get into thinking, you know, as a woman, as an African-American woman, as a, or a black woman, I should say, because so many people who are, you know, <laughs> yeah, part of yeah, this yeah. situation are from the Caribbean or Africa or UK. Um, you know, how does this feel to me as a, as an ex? Um, important question, but we also need, how does this happen to me, feel to me as a human? And I think that because to some degree, it's become so common to talk about, well, how this feels to me as a, you know, as a woman, we now have the evolution of a backlash. Well, how does this feel to me as a white man? As a white man, I have this and I'm, you know, this sort of idea, I'm the true victim here. You know, we, we need a little more <laughs> reverse privilege in all these conversations. We need a little more of, you know, how does this feel to me as a human being? And that's what's missing, um, particularly from our national conversation, I, I have to say, about, you know, how does this feel to me as a human being? And we see this, you know, there's this, this thing that uh, we talk about now a lot, which is I need to bring my authentic self to everything. And, yeah. you know, that that always misses one thing and you see it that the white men are, are the worst about this. And I can say that as, as one is that there's a reciprocal obligation to allow my truth to be impacted by the truth of others with yeah. whom I interact. And until we under, begin to understand that phenomenon a lot better and put it into action, then we're going to struggle with a lot of these things like lack of curiosity because I've got more of a homogenous world. We're going to struggle with things, you know, like lack of imagination because where is it going to come from? I mean, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, about that phenomenon, about bringing your whole self, but understanding interdependence, right? Like interdependence has never been more important in the history of the world because knowledge is doubling every 12 hours. We can't possibly be masters of almost anything so we're interdependent well i love that connection you made it's really you know the the idea is bring your authentic self to work or wherever but if you're doing that in a way that says well this is how i feel this is how i was raised this is my experience end of story then as you say you're not allowing for other people to to have an experience so the key there, of course, is curious, you know, is curiosity. Well, this this is how I grew up. This is, I mean, this is what happened with Bev Wright and the guy from East Texas. This is how I grew up. I'm curious about what your experience there was. So I think there's a little bit too much categorical, you know, this is how I am. This is how I was raised. This is, you know, that we, we see a bit too much of that. And that cuts off empathy, imagination curiosity so so those are the ways we don't cultivate that but there's another thing in terms of work i happen to feel that the endless emphasis on authenticity at work has is in danger of undermining what makes us successful at work and that is professionalism professional behavior uh, uh professional competence as opposed to just a sort of free-floating confidence, which um, we, we see a lot of at the leadership level, totally untethered <laughs> to competence, um, and, and taking pride in our professionalism. Mm -hmm. what, what strikes me about professionalism is people can be professional at every single level in any kind of position or job we can be professional and i think that that authenticity often underplays the importance of professional standards professional behavior etc i really do think that our friend marshall goldsmith always says you know showing up as a you know when when you're a broadway actor and you have a show that night and you don't feel well you don't walk out there on stage and say, well, I don't feel very well and I'm having trouble getting into this role and blah, blah, blah. No, you're a professional. You show up. You inhabit the role. You do the best you can with the skills that you have spent a lifetime cultivating. 
it's and and the authenticity <laughs> movement almost would have us go out on stage and say, well, I don't feel very well right now. Uh, <laughs> that's the expressing my authentic self. That's so, right. so I think, you know, it's really helpful to think about, you know, add professionalism into this mix of what we're talking about in regard to curiosity, to imagination and empathy. Yeah, I think another uh, trending uh, movement that is uh, inhibiting all of that is also cancel culture. Because that is inhibiting conversations because people say, well, we just don't want to have that conversation. Well, if you don't have the courage, the curiosity, or the imagination to have the conversation, guess where we're going to be? Exactly where we are right now. And so we have to kind of, we, we, we have to get away from this whole, I'm going to call it the cancel culture movement. Boy, do I agree with you on that. I mean, first of all, people are often afraid to have conversations because if they say something wrong, it's going to blow up. And next thing they know, they're going to be on social media and people are going to be harassing them. Or if they're in the workplace, they're going to be called in by HR. You know, we all make mistakes and cluelessness and tactlessness are not really hanging offenses. And that's mm -hmm. part of what cancel culture uh, <laughs> really, um, really is oriented toward. Um, uh, so I think some of the language, and this is something that I think is particularly concerning at the college level, because a lot of young people are being getting the idea in college that you know they need to focus on microaggressions as they're called microaggressions you know usually amount to what i talked about before tactlessness and cluelessness because they're micro they're not you know they're not overt racist policies they're not overt sexual harassment not at all they're you know little things that that could be better uh, so that focus is problematic the other focus and this is something I talk about in, in my book that's coming out in February, Rising Together, is that you this kind of started with the idea that, you know, kids can say, oh, this is triggering me. You know, if they're in a literature class and they don't like, you know, somebody, the mongoose, because you say, <laughs> well, this is triggering me because Rudyard Kipling was a colonialist, you know, whatever, in India. Okay, fine. That's, that's good. But we're, you know, once we get into adult life, once we get into this rough and tumble workplace, we are triggered constantly. Yes. Um, and if we don't find, and, and this is really one of the things the book is about, if we don't find effective ways to deal with common triggers, we will never reach our full potential. Right. We will never have the capacity to position ourselves for real leadership, we will remain stuck in, I can't handle this, I can't do this, which is the opposite of, of courage. That's right. You know, it's almost teaching kids that you, you, you don't wanna have courage. You want to emphasize, I'm triggered, I've gotta leave, you've gotta stop, we can't read this book, et cetera. So it's, it's shifted now, you know, different factions have picked it up in different ways, but it's not, it's so inappropriate given <laughs> what the workplace is evolving into it's it's it, it's really not preparing uh kids well absolutely you know we this is such a great conversation we could probably go on for hours but i know we don't have that kind of time i want to give our listeners a chance to know how to find you so you know whether it's social media profile or or your book coming out what can you tell our our listening uh and viewing audience about where to find uh, Sally Helgeson. Well, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, my website is Sally Helgeson, and uh, I have lots of material on that. I also have a contact button, and I have links through to um, through to Facebook, to uh, LinkedIn, and to Twitter. I tend to I you know have been on LinkedIn for quite a while. I tend to particularly respond to Twitter. I find it interesting right now, even as it's melting down. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's, it's been a, a, a good platform because there's a lot of interesting stuff going on uh, there. And, um, you know, following some of the next gen political operatives has been very, very inspiring. 
uh, in terms of, you know, the conversation we were just having about uh, university students and the triggering and the microaggressions. But what I'm also seeing is, is this next generation of kids in terms of their political awareness and their environmental awareness uh, is extraordinary. It mm. is incredible. We've got, we've got people who are sophomores at UCLA who have influential blogs about political reality. We have coordinated efforts across the United States um, to bring students to not only to vote, but to support what's going on in Georgia now. It is remarkable to witness and you can really see it there but i'm getting off the question about <laughs> so that you know those those links are there the contact button is there the contact button uh lets me know if you've sent me an email uh so i'm i'm pretty pretty easy to uh pretty easy to find and pretty easy to get in touch with well we certainly appreciate your time today sharing your wisdom with our audience the chance to have a great conversation uh, and we also thank our listeners uh, for taking the time today. And we always close up by saying you can find us uh, at unlikelyintersection.com. You can find us on Facebook at Unlikely Intersections. You can find me on LinkedIn at Doc Philip Brown. And Terry. You can find me at uh, LinkedIn at Terry Jackson, Ph.D., as well as on Facebook. And Sally, as always, it was a great conversation, a lot of great insights. Uh, thank you so very much for joining us today. Well, thank you, because you've really stirred my thinking. This conversation about curiosity and imagination and empathy, the example of the mongoose, Terry, what you were talking about, about having a daughter requiring you to put yourself in, to imagine yourself um, as, uh, as that child and understand those experiences. I think all of this is very was very rich conversation for me, and I will carry this with me. So I want to thank you for for inviting me and for for, for me being, I believe, the first guest that you have on this podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And we hope that you'll come check us out at more intersections in the future. That's right. Beautiful.